Um, there, there's just something special about this season, but I, as we get into my sermon this morning, I, I want us to stay focused on Jesus, uh, because a lot of times we could get distracted, right? And we could get distracted with, with the, the season and, and everything else, but the reason why we do this, the reason why we, we decorate the church is for Jesus, amen? Amen. So if you're a first-time guest with us today, we are so glad that you're here. Um, And if you're watching on Liberty Live, uh, we are glad that you decided to tune in with us um, from wherever you are. Um, But my name is M.A. Dozer. I'm the youth pastor here at Liberty Baptist Church. And uh, Pastor David is away today. He is spending time with family back home in the mountains of North Carolina. And so when David asked me to preach on Christmas Eve, to be honest with you, I was not quite sure what I was going to preach on. Um, I had some things rolling around in my head. I, I had some ideas, but I was not hard set on anything. And, and uh, so I, I began to, to meditate and pray over what to preach on. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Um, and that is where it talks about there was no room for them in the end. And I came to this conclusion because um, I was not set on anything. And I was actually at the property, at our property with my dad, and I was moving a deer stand. Um, and he was helping me move it, and I was about 15 foot up in a red oak tree trying to get a ratchet strap around to get this deer stand moved. Um, and I just asked my dad, I said, Dad, I said, let me ask you a question. If you were going to preach on Christmas Eve, what would you preach on? And with almost zero hesitation, my dad said, I would preach on the fact that there was no room in the end for Jesus. Um, and so that's where we're going to be today. So if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, we'll be in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And it says this, It says, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's pray. Lord, um, as we come this morning, I hope you open our hearts and our ears to your word, Lord. I pray that you uh, come into this place and you change lives in the way that we know you can. Lord, I pray that those last few words in this verse, we do not take lightly where it says there was no room for you in the end. I pray we hear that loud and clear and, and we change that in our own lives, in our own society, and in our own culture, that we have plenty of room for you. And so, Lord, as we come this morning, I pray we come humbly and we stay focused on who you are and what you did for us. In this time of busyness, in this, in this season of busyness, Lord, I pray we, we hold off all the distractions this morning and stay focused on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all may be seated. So, as I began to meditate on this, of what my dad said, that there was no room in the inn, and what Luke chapter 2 verse 7 says, questions began to run through my head. Now, if you know anything about me, um, I am a questioner. Um, I'm very analytical. I'm a very uh, practical individual. And so, questions are something I love, because I think questions lead to discovery. I tell our youth every Wednesday, hey, ask questions. I don't care if you think that they're ridiculous. I don't care if you think that they're outlandish. Ask questions. Because in the real world, in our world today, everything we have and all our society has accumulated is because someone asked a question. The lights we have in here, the, the heat, your clothes, the pews you're sitting on, the automobiles you drove here are all because at some point in time in history, someone asked the question, either why or I wonder what if. And so the same can be said about our spiritual lives. We need to ask questions in order to allow it to make us dive into God's holy word, the truth, so that we can get the answers. 
and it will build us in our spiritual lives. And so I began to ask questions. That's how I begin anything when I dive in the Bible. And so I asked this question. I said, well, why was there no room for Jesus and Mary and Joseph? And when I began to contemplate this, I tell you I'm practical. I'm a very practical individual. On the surface level, the answer was very easy. It's, it's because in Luke chapter 2, we know that King Caesar had decreed that the whole world be taxed. And so what he did was he said, each man is to return to his hometown to be accounted for and taxed. And so along with each adult male probably came wives and more than likely children. And in some cases, probably servants came along with them. And so what we see is that the little town of Bethlehem would have seen a large influx of people at one given time. And so this gives us a very simple and practical answer of why there was no physical room for Jesus. But I want to dive deeper. I want to get to the root of the issue because I think we are plagued in our society today and our culture today with the same things that Bethlehem were back then. See, once we get past the simple answer and we get, begin to get past the physical into the spiritual world, we realize that there was no physical room for Jesus because there was no spiritual room in their hearts for Jesus. See, the, Micah, uh, the prophet Micah prophesied in Micah chapter 5 that the Messiah, the Christ, would come from Bethlehem. He said this nearly 700 years before the birth of Jesus. He said this in Micah 5, But you, O Bethlehem, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So this was not a mystery to the Jewish people. This was not a secret. It was not something that was unknown. It was something that every Jewish person would have known or been taught growing up. Even when the wise men came to Herod to ask about the Christ, to ask the Messiah, where, where was this baby to be born? Where was he at? Herod was a Greek, so he didn't know. But what happens is he gathered all the, the Jewish scribes and all the Jewish priests together and said, hey, where, where's your Messiah? Where's your king supposed to be born? And they told him, oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They knew it. They even quoted Micah 5 to Herod to tell him where he would be born. So the question we must ask is, how did they miss it? How was the Savior of the world born in Bethlehem in a place that God explicitly told his people, hey, the Messiah is coming from Bethlehem, but yet there was no room for him when he arrived? You know, the truth of the matter is, I thought about this in my own life, and, and to be honest with you, if the Savior of the world, if I got a letter saying the Savior of the world was going to come to my house, you best know that we would have a room ready. We would have clean sheets on the bed. We'd have nice towels folded and put at the end of the table or at, at the end of the bed. We'd have a complimentary chocolate on his pillow. We'd have a note that said how humbled and honored we were that he was coming to stay with us. My wife Chelsea would be, be all over the place sanitizing and organizing and cleaning and making sure the house was completely in order. So if you know my wife, nothing in her life would change. <laughs> But my kids, my kids, I have three kids, all ages eight and under, and I guarantee you my kids, because they do this when anybody comes to the house, they would be sitting on the couch with eager anticipation of his arrival. They would be sitting there going, is he here yet? How, how much longer until he comes? Is he here yet? My daughter would probably say, how long has it been since the last time I asked you, is he here? That's what our kids do. And I guarantee you when he arrives, they would jump off the couch, running through the house, barefoot, screaming, he's here, he's here. 
They'd probably run through, run out the house, leave the door open. My son may or may not have pants on, but we don't know. That's debatable. And he would go out in the yard, and they would go out in the yard, and they would scream and be waving, saying, He's here. He has arrived. But let me ask you a question. How many days in a row would you do this? Would you keep clean sheets on the bed, keep clean towels there, wait on the couch with anticipation, eager anticipation of the Savior of the Lord before it kind of just waned off and complacency began to set in? What about 400 years? See, what we know is that at the birth of Jesus, God had been silent to the Jewish people for 400 years. For 400 years, the Jewish people had been waiting on the Savior with no new word from the Lord. See, I think this is where the people of Bethlehem and honestly the world found themselves. They were drowning in complacency. They were, they were drowning in busyness. The excitement had worn off. The anticipation had dwindled. And the fire that once burned for the arrival of the Messiah had gone out as the older generations neglected to pass down the passion and zeal of the Lord to the next generation, that the Savior of the world would be born in Bethlehem. You see, one of the major roles of the elder generations is to pass down the passion and zeal of God's Word to the younger generations. Psalm 78.4 says, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Joel chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 says this, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and let their children tell another generation. See, unfortunately, I see this at play in the American church today. We're just going through the motions. We're just drowning in complacency and we're filling our time with programs and not passing down the truth of God's word to the next generation. See, we have made the success of the church predicated on how many seats we can fill rather than on how many souls can be changed. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that one of the greatest tactics of the devil is to deceive the body of believers, the church in a way that we begin to strive for and define success in a way that has no eternal impact or significance. The question we must constantly ask ourselves is this, whose kingdom are we building? Are we building our individual kingdoms, the kingdom of M.A. Dozier? Are we building the kingdom of Liberty Baptist Church? Or are we solely focused on building the kingdom of Christ? There's a magazine out there called Christianity Today, and their 2022 report came out, and, and it says this, the, the 2023 report may have just come out, I don't know, but this is from the 2022 report, so last year. It says this, it says, when researchers for the American Bible Society annual state of the Bible report saw this year's survey statistics, they found it hard to believe the results. The data roughly said that 26 million people had mostly or completely stopped reading their Bible in the last year. John Plake, the leading researcher for the American Bible Society, he wrote in the 2022 report, and he said this. He said, what we have discovered was startling, disheartening, and disruptive. We've reviewed our calculations, he said. We've double-checked our math. We've ran the numbers again and again. But the numbers stated this, that in, at the end of 2022, 
only 39% of Christians say that they read their Bible multiple times per year or more. Now, I, I, I don't want that to go over our heads. I don't want us to miss that. 39%, only 39% of professing Christians, only 39% of what is called the body of Christ read their Bible at all. And then of those 39%, it says that they only read it a couple times a year. Not a couple times a month, not a couple times a week. They're saying we only read it a couple times a year. They said it is the steepest and sharpest decline on record. See, we have become so complacent that we now have church congregations that do not know the Bible. We've become a society that calls itself Christian, but cannot articulate the truth of God's word or explain the gospel. We have built a religious tradition that is about appearing to be Christian and keeping up with the status quo, but we cannot answer the basic truths of our faith. The vast majority of people in the church today will claim to be Christian, but they cannot tell you the basic foundational truths of their faith. When asked, why did Jesus have to die? They can't answer it. But the vast majority of people can't tell you biblical truths. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's writing to young Timothy and he warns him. In verses 3 and 4, he says, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Church, I'm here to tell you that time is not coming. It has arrived. We are here. We have a society filled with people who claim to be Christian, but have no biblical foundation on what the truth of God's word is. This is why we have churches that are placating demonic ideologies and people filling pulpits, spewing false theology and corrupt and horrific teachings. The word of God does not bend to our own fleshly desires and wants. If we claim to be Christian, then we submit our whole life to the authority of Scripture, regardless of the cultural or societal times we live in. If we are in disagreement with the Word of God, then we are the ones that need to change. And we do not apologize, change, discount, or water down the truth of the gospel. See, one of my greatest fears as I stand in this pulpit is that I correctly expound on the truth of God's Word. Because one day I will stand before the throne of the Almighty to give an account on how I properly taught and, and preached and correctly expounded on God's holy word. And that moment terrifies me. It vastly outweighs anyone's opinion of me or feelings toward me. Listen, church, this book, this holy word of God is designed and intended to offend the world. It is designed and intended to ruffle the feathers of society. There are things in this book that are going to offend you. There are things in this book that are going to make you upset. This book is not meant to make you feel all warm and fuzzy. It is meant to make you holy. To transform you and mold you more and more into the image of Christ. The theologian Charles Spurgeon once said this, Christ offends men because his gospel is intolerant of sin. A large majority of proclaiming Christians today would tell you that God just wants you to be happy. That he just wants you to live a great life. The problem with that is that is not the gospel. Jesus said to his own disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 10, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep 
in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. See, what we have to understand is Jesus did not die so that we could be happy. Jesus died so that we could be made holy in the eyes of an almighty God. And if scripture tells us anything, it's that God is willing to make us miserable if that means he makes us holy. James, the half-brother of Jesus, started off his entire book with this statement right here. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that you may be holy. Church, I'm here to tell you that God is far more concerned with our holiness than he is with our happiness. The Bible tells us we must be transformed, that we are depraved sinners in desperate need of a Savior. But for us to be transformed, we must immerse ourselves in the truth of God's holy word, and we must teach our children the importance of it. And we must help build a foundation for them and for us based on the promises of God. See, I love the promises of God. I, there's nothing that encourages me more than opening the Bible and reading the promises that God has spoke to us. Every night, I pray the promises of God over my children. I want their lives and souls to be so drenched in the truth of Scripture, and I want them to have a biblical foundation for their life that is so solid on the rock that when the storms come and the waves crash against their life, they can stand firm, stand tall, and be immovable in their faith. Luke chapter 6, verses 47 through 49, Jesus said, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears, hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. My question for us this morning is, have we dug a deep foundation for our lives? Have we built our house on the rock? Do you know the basic foundational truths of the Christian faith, and are you sharing those with your children and your neighbors and your communities? Do you know that the vast majority of Americans who call themselves Christians cannot answer, biblically answer, foundational questions about their faith? Questions like, what does God expect for us? Questions like, why did Jesus have to die? Or, why is Jesus called the Redeemer? I'm going to answer these questions for us this morning. So why is the word redeemed so vital to our faith? We use it all the time, but I, I, I doubt most people know what it actually means. By definition, the word redeem is to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment. Some common synonyms we like to interchange with the word redeem are deliver, ransom, reclaim, rescue, save. Now, while all these words mean to set free from confinement or danger, the word redeem actually implies releasing from bondage or penalties by giving, giving what is demanded or necessary. See, the difference between redeem and these other words is I could potentially save somebody without paying the price. I could potentially rescue or, or deliver somebody out of, a, out of bondage without paying the price. 
But if, I, if we've been ransomed, it means that the price that is demanded has been paid on our behalf. So why do we need to be redeemed? Why is it so important that we be redeemed? Well, Matthew 5.48 tells us that God's expectation for us is perfection. That is his standard for us to be in relationship with him. It is perfection. Romans 3.23 tells us that we have all sinned and therefore we are all imperfect. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, which means the payment that we need to pay in order for our sin is death. So it's pretty black and white. God expects perfection. We are not perfect because of our sin, and because of our sin, the payment that is demanded for our sin is death. If you read through the Bible, you will see that through the whole Old and New Testament, sin is not forgiven. Sin is paid for by death. And there's a common misconception in our church that sins are forgiven. That is simply not true. In the Old Testament, it was paid for through the blood sacrifice of an animal that was without blemish. And in the New Testament, it is paid for by Jesus, who is called the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. See, because Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life, he was the only one that could die and pay for our sins. And Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 2.2 says he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a really big word, but it literally means a payment that satisfies. Jesus' death on the cross was the payment that satisfied the, the debt that was demanded of our sin. Philippians 2, 7 through 8 says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Apostle Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, he said, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. See, without the perfect, sinless blood of Jesus, we are dead. As sinful creatures, or as Paul said in his letter to the Ephesians, by nature we are children of wrath. We have no way of approaching the throne room of God. We have to surrender our lives to the authority and leadership of Jesus Christ and allow his blood shed on the cross to pay the price that is demanded in order to redeem our souls. So if you're here this morning and you claim to be redeemed, I want you to fully know what that means. I don't want you to just say it. I want you to be able to articulate it. And if you're here this morning and, and you've never been saved, you've never given your life to Christ, I don't want you to hear something other than the gospel. So this is the truth. In Isaiah chapter 43, one of my favorite chapters of the whole Bible, it starts off in verse 1. It says, The Lord of hosts says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, and you are mine. This means that the creator of the universe, the Almighty God, is literally saying, I have released you from the bondage of sin and penalty of death by paying the price that is demanded to cover the cost of your sin. The price demanded is death, and I was beaten, mocked, spit on, and crucified on a cross to set you free, and now you are mine. What I just walked through the past five to seven minutes is entry-level biblical truth that every single person that claims the name of Christ should be able to speak about with candor and conviction. 
because it is the foundational truth of why Jesus had to come, live a perfect life, and die on a cross. So my question for us today is, do we really believe this? We call ourselves Christians, we claim to be redeemed, but are we complacent on teaching the truths to the next generation of what it truly means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ? The Savior of the world was born in Bethlehem, and his own people, the ones who knew that one day he would come, had no room for him because they had become complacent and apathetic to his arrival. Church, listen, one day the Savior of the world will return again. Will we be eagerly waiting, or will we miss him because we've become complacent and apathetic to his return? Are we immersing our lives in the truth of God's holy word and sharing the good news with everybody we can with eager anticipation of his return? Unfortunately, what I've come to find is that the majority of American Christians are uncertain, weary, and ignorant to the truth of God's word. We've become complacent on building our lives on the solid rock of scriptures. We are weak in his promises and we have become a culture that is just busy. There's a saying that says, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. I'm sure y'all probably heard that. And to be honest with you, in our society today, I'm constantly hearing, man, there ain't, just, there ain't enough time in the day. I got too much to do. I can't get things done. There, there ain't enough time. When you call someone, you're like, hey, how's life going? The general response is, I'm busy. And look, I'm just as guilty as the next. When someone calls me, my general response is I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off. We are a society that is busier than ever, and I think everybody in here can relate to that. If we look at Luke chapter 10, we see an account of Mary and Martha with Jesus that confronts this topic of busyness. We'll be in verse 38. But this section of Scripture is something that I have to read over my own life over and over and over again. Because if I'm honest with myself, it is something that confronts directly an issue in my own heart. It is something that I have to come back to often and remind myself of the truths that is being spoke of in this Scripture. It says this in chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed, her, welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I want to focus in on verse 40. Verse 40 says, But Martha was distracted with much serving. I've always found this verse to be problematic in my life, because if I'm honest about the state of my own soul, I'm Martha. I'm a doer. I'm a go-getter. I don't sit well. But here's the hard truth. Even though Martha was working hard, and even though Martha was getting things done and accomplishing things, which, come on, men, in our society, that's something we, we value, right? Get it done. Be productive. 
even though she was getting things done and she was, she was doing the hard work, and at least in her mind, she was doing it all for Jesus. She had invited Jesus over. She was setting the table for Jesus. She was preparing the meal for Jesus. She was doing much serving for Jesus. But what she was missing is what Jesus calls the good portion. See, in regards to our church culture today in America, we are busier than we have ever been. We fill our calendars nonstop with events and programs. And this time of year is always the busiest. For instance, just a short list. We decorate the church for Christmas. We have the Christmas choir, Christmas play, Christmas parties, Christmas candlelight service, Christmas Eve service, Christmas day service, Christmas shopping, Christmas cards, Christmas cookies, Christmas pictures. Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. Where's Jesus in that? We can say all day long we're doing it for Jesus, but are we really? Look, I love Christmas. Don't think I'm a Grinch, because I'm not. I love this time of year. I love the family traditions. I love the activities. I love spending time with family. I love the food. Lord knows I love the food. These can all be enjoyable things. But when the activities and, and, and the programs and everything else and the quote-unquote serving for the Lord takes priority over being with the Lord, we need to reassess our priorities. See, I feel like we've allowed the devil to distract us with a whole lot of stuff, activities, expectations, traditions, that we're missing out on the good portion, the portion that makes room for Jesus. The portion that is found sitting at the feet of Jesus just in amazement of who he is and what he did for a black-hearted sinner just like me. The portion that intentionally and deliberately makes room for the Savior of the world. In our world today, there are two main ways we sit at the feet of Jesus. And that's through meditating on his word and through prayer. Are we intentionally and deliberately making room in our lives on a daily basis for meditating on his word and for prayer? We need to look no further than Jesus himself who modeled this time and time again throughout his own ministry. He intentionally and deliberately made time to spend with his father. In Matthew chapter 14, after he feeds the 5,000, we see him send off his disciples and the rest of the people. And in verse 23, it says, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. In Mark chapter 1, after healing many people in a town, in verse 35, it tells us, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. In Luke chapter 5, after cleansing the leper, it says in verse 16, but he withdrew to desolate places and prayed. See, while retreating to a desolate place and praying, oftentimes for us can be recharging. It can be refreshing. It's a time for us to rest and recoup. That is true, and maybe that's why Jesus did it a lot. But also, what we have to understand is, is that the power of prayer is an act of war in the spiritual realms. There is power in prayer, and it is a deadly weapon against the forces of evil in the spiritual realms. It is one of our greatest weapons. James 5.16 tells us that the, power, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. As a church, are we fervently praying? 
Are we intentionally and deliberately spending time at the feet of Jesus in prayer? And do our children and the younger generation see us modeling this in our own lives? Now, I want to be clear, because in our society today, for some reason, we like to go to one extreme or the other. So you're going to have people that say, oh, all you got to do, you, you just got to go out and serve. There's no time to sit. You got to be Martha, no time to serve. And then there's going to be people that say, oh, Pastor May talked about just sitting at the feet of Jesus all day and praying. But that negates the great commission that Jesus told us to go do in Matthew chapter 28, where he says, go and make disciples. To go and make disciples requires us to serve. It requires us to get into our communities. It requires us to have programs and events. But blessed is the balanced. And so even though we need to go and serve and we need to go and do events, and even though we got to do programs and engage our community for the good news of the gospel, we have to intentionally and deliberately and routinely come back to the feet of our Savior. Now I'm going to begin closing. Miss Hopi, if you'd like to come up. You can play some keys. As I begin closing, I just have a few final thoughts. I was reading through the book of Revelation, and if you have read any of the book of Revelation, you know that starting in chapter 2, there's letters to individual churches, the seven churches. And in Revelation chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, there, this is a section that is a letter to the church of Ephesus. And it says this. It says, I know, talking about the church, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. See, my fear this morning, church, my fear is that this verse is a direct reflection of the modern American church, and we've become like Martha. We've become anxious and troubled about many things, and we are distracted with much serving. And we have walked away from our first love. We have walked away from the good portion. See, if you go all the way back to Luke chapter 10, Jesus responds to Martha and says, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion. See, Mary exemplified the model that the church should follow. It says that she just sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. She just sat in his majesty. She just spent time with her Savior. She was not going to miss an opportunity to spend time with her Redeemer. We need to create time in our daily lives in which we sit undistracted at the feet of Jesus and just revel in who he is. And we need to constantly and routinely come back to his feet. This season, the remainder of the year, all the way into next year and continuing on, are we sitting at the feet of Jesus in awe of who he is and what he has done for us? Are we taking time to be with the one who gave his life for us, who redeemed us, who paid the price that is demanded of us, which is death? And are we eagerly waiting his return and telling the younger generations of his glorious deeds? Nearly 20 years ago, the band Casting Crowns put out a song called While You Were Sleeping. Some of you may have heard it. And I'm going to read these lyrics, and I just want you to think about them. I'm not going to sing because the Lord knows he's not gifted me in that way. But I'll, see, I'll read these to you. It says, O Bethlehem, what you have missed while you were sleeping. For God became a man and stepped into your world today. O Bethlehem, you will go down in history 
as a city with no room for its king. While you were sleeping, United States of America, it looks like another silent night as we're sound asleep by philosophies that save the trees and kill the children. And while we're lying in the dark, there's a shout heard across the eastern sky for the bridegroom has returned and he has carried his bride away in the night. America, what will we miss while we are sleeping? Will Jesus come again and leave us slumbering where we lay? America, will we go down in history as a nation with no room for its king? Will we be sleeping? United States of America, it looks like another silent night. Listen, church, one day the Savior of the world will return again. Will we be eagerly waiting? Will our children be eagerly waiting? Will our grandchildren and great-grandchildren and generations to come be eagerly waiting? Or will we miss him because we have become complacent and apathetic to his return and we have neglected to pass down the passion and zeal of the word of the Lord to the following generations? Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. My prayer for us this morning is that not be said of us. My prayer this morning is it not be said of us that we had no room for our king. My prayer this morning as we go out from here and the rest of the day and throughout the rest of tomorrow and throughout the rest of the year and on forth forevermore, we always have room for our king. But that requires us to make sure we are intentionally getting into his word and coming back and sitting at his feet in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to dive in your word. Thank you for the opportunity for you to speak loudly to us. I pray hearts are opened and ears are tuned in to what you are speaking this morning. And I pray that we don't get distracted with everything that the devil tries to throw at us, even though those things can be enjoyable and good. Lord, I pray that we stay laser focused on what the reason for the season is, and it is for you. Because you humbled yourself. You came down in a manger as a baby. And you walked this earth. You put on flesh and walked this earth. Scripture says you are a great high priest because you have been tempted in every way we've been tempted and you can relate to us. Lord, how unworthy am I of the grace that you've bestowed on me in redeeming me and paying the price that was demanded for my soul. Thank you for what you did and thank you for what you did for everybody else. I pray they hear it loud and clear, Lord. I pray they hear the gospel loud and clear that you died to redeem their souls. In Jesus' name, amen.